You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. This is the voice of world control. I bring you peace. It may be the peace of fighting and contempt. Or the peace of unburied death. The choice is yours. Obey me and live. Or disobey and die. I'm gonna touch your body. As a man, I've touched you. But I'm going to show you things which human eyes have never seen. In the privacy of a woman's room, against her will, the inconceivable act. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Next week, we're talking about aliens and Spielberg's dad. So uh, join the sleaze. Come on now. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over five years. There's like yeah. 130, 140 bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series, where we talk about new release genre movies. And we got some big ones on the way. So if you mm-hmm. haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash podcast. And speaking of which, we did have a bunch of people make the jump this week. So we'll Beautiful. give them their shout outs here. We had Logan Giesman, uh, Reese Paul, David Witten Davis, uh, Emiliano. Biez, uh, Karen Bathaja, Winnipeg Bisk, uh, Claire Casey, who signed up for an entire year of the show at a slightly discounted rate. You can do that if you're interested. Uh, Zach Armstrong signed up, Who Cares signed up, DC, <laughs> uh, The Golden Hour, Jake uh marston and last but not least oh jake marston for a whole year of the show at the ten dollar a month rate so he's going to be joining us for the virtual screenings thank you jake and last but not least casey emmerling so thanks so much to you folks hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes yeah thank you we appreciate the support uh that's the one plug for the week the other plug as always is apple Podcasts and spotify if you were listening on either one of those platforms and i see the stats i see you right now listening on both those platforms give us a good old rating and review down at the bottom it helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners and the very last plug as always is merch if you like the poster art that based out of toronto horror artist trevor henderson did for the show you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of a pillow a hoodie, a notebook, just a poster for your apartment. Um, that link is in the uh, description of this episode as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested. But uh, that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time uh, you folks over on the main feed would have heard from us, and uh, we would have had special uh, returning guest Andrew Law of the Bunta Vista podcast on to go couch potato mode with us <laughs> and discuss uh, sketch comedies centered around uh, television sets in Weird Al Yankovic's UHF from 1989, as well as Peter Hyams's Stay Tuned from 1992, one of the more kind of like oddball underseen <laughs> Uh, movies of that era ripping off like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Back to the Future and lots of wacky television pastiche parodies going on in both films. Yeah, yeah. And I did find uh, a new love for for Weird Al after UHF. So that was it was a good time. Highly recommend. 
Definitely. So you haven't heard that episode that was over on the main feed uh, two weeks ago. And then last week over on the bonus feed, because there's some renewed interest around uh, one of uh, our favorite filmmakers on this show, Wes Craven, who we did our very first episode of the show on Hills Have Eyes. Uh, there is a new Scream out. Uh, and we decided that since we've already covered all of the Scream films, uh, a more interesting use of our time on the show would have been to talk about some kind of underseen B-sides of Wes Craven. So we talked about his post-Nightmare on Elm Street uh, success, uh, movies where he was sort of making his own off-brand sequels to them, where he mm -hmm. did a movie in 1986 called Deadly Friend and a movie called Shocker in 1989. Both films concerned with teens versus adults and dreams and brutal super supernatural murders um and uh yeah if you haven't seen shocker in my opinion yeah. it is an essential craven text it is the movie he claims to have had the most artistic control over he wrote it it's <laughs> all about <laughs> his yeah it's all about his abusive father and uh sort of you know rejecting the uh, generational violence mm -hmm. yeah it's it's fantastic I and mean, you can definitely tell between the two which one he had uh, more control over <laughs> Because uh, Deadly Game has some some fun things in it, but some strange choices tonally. Yeah, but there is a basketball head explosion in that one too. Yeah, so it's he worth shot. the that was, Yeah, that was worth <laughs> a lot of fun. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was over on uh, the Patreon last week. Go back and uh, go back and check it out if you're interested. Uh, but moving on to this week, we have a very special guest uh, joining us for the first time. He is the uh, head of content over at The Ringer, where a good friend of the pod, Adam Naiman, regularly writes film reviews for, has come up on the show before. And he is also the host of the Big Picture podcast over there. And that guest is Sean Fennessy. Sean, how are you doing? Hi, boys. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to be here and talk about films that I probably would not get a chance to talk about on my show, or at least not at the length that we're about to talk about them. So I appreciate being yeah. here. Exactly. No, that every time we get asked to guest on people's show, that's our exact process too. We always try, try to talk about post uh, two thousand horror films and stuff. So like we never talk about them on our show. So let's go. You know, let's do it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Sean, we're very glad to to uh, have you. Wanting to have you on for a little while. And as the show goes, I'm sure you know, we ask the guests to bring the double feature with them. So what two films have you brought with you this week, and why did you pair them together? Well, I, I landed on science fiction in part because um, science fiction is simultaneously the most important genre category and also the most overlooked, in my opinion. And I'm fascinated by the, science, the studio science fiction movies of the 1970s. So I've chosen two for us. The first one is from 1970. It's called Colossus, the Forbin Project, and it involves AI. And the second one is from 1977 and it is also about AI and it's called Demon Seed and they are both incredibly strange but for incredibly different reasons so mm. I'm looking forward to seeing how they fit together and how maybe they don't. Yeah, this is a this is a cool double feature of post 2001 70s AI gone wrong thrillers, lots of wonderful analog production design and screens and dials and humans scared that a machine is going to be killing them. Uh, one uh, approached more, I guess, in sort of like <laughs> bodily autonomy, anxiety, horror and more and kind of like like an absurd sort of like Cold War paranoia but i had not seen either of these films uh, mm -hmm. and i actually yeah, hadn't even heard of colossus which is it's 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 pretty rare that someone brings on something that i was just not aware of at all and which also considering yeah. joseph Sargent, i feel like i should have been more aware i just clearly should have been checking out his catalog a little bit deeper he has some some films in there so yeah. but uh yeah that being said um i think we are going to do this double feature 
chronologically here. So we are going to start things off with Colossus, the Forbin Project. The missile has just been launched. It is heading towards the Cyan Sibiesk oil complex. Guardian has retaliated. Retaliated? It may be too late, sir. Oh, my God. Right, we are talking Colossus, The Forbin Project, the 1970 American science fiction thriller film uh, directed by Joseph Sargent and based on the 1966 novel Colossus by one Dennis Jones. And this is, I think, our third, I think our third time talking about Joseph Sargent, the New Jersey filmmaker uh, who started in the world of TV with things like The Man from Uncle and Gunsmoke, but is most well known for his uh, very tough and gritty 70s action films that we've covered including Mm -hmm. uh, the Burt Reynolds vehicle White Lightning, his first time playing the character of uh, Gator and featuring tons of uh, outlaw moonshining and prison escapes and car chases. And uh, Sargent did a really competent job taking over for Spielberg, who was originally meant to direct that film. Uh, But more famously, probably, is his uh, riveting logistical New York subway heist film, The Taking of Pelham 123 from 1974. A movie I was actually just thinking about last night because I just saw the canon film Runaway train on a print oh yeah um and i was like you know not just because it's dirty men on a train in a thriller but also because like there's a lot of cutting to like the control rooms and just the breakneck Mm. pace of the sort of pursuit element um uh of it and i remember when we talked about pelham we were just in love with how peppered that was with like great character actors being angry New Yorkers who are good at their jobs. (laughs) And the way that that movie moves from like the train to the control room, to the cops up top, to the people underground, to the mayor's office, just like this following this line of broken communication and the process and deliberation of all of the planning that they are putting through and stuff like that, which uh, I would say that this contains a tiny bit of, I could see a little bit in some of the later tense sequences that happen in this film, but just not quite in the same uh, like ode to desperate working people in the same way that uh, <laughs> taking a Pelham one two three is as this film. Yeah, there's not as much urgency in, in uh, the, yeah, the for sure. project. Yeah, as as and that's partially based on the material because instead yeah. this film is about a Dr. Charles Forbin played by uh, Eric Braden of uh, Young and the Restless fame as well as uh, right. my yeah uh, Larry Cohen's The Ambulance. Um, nice. <laughs> I wanted to bring that one up, but yeah, Young and the Restless is he's been on that show for like seventy years or so. He's like unbelievable. <laughs> he's like one of the most affectless actors of all time, and he definitely brings that demeanor to this character where he is the lead architect of a super supercomputer called Colossus that is meant to run America's nuclear defenses. But of course, uh, similar to the film we're going to talk about next, Demon Seed, uh, it, it takes its programming logic to the extreme. It overthrows its masters and becomes sentient. Um, and uh, unlike the more sort of personal stakes of what it decides to do from there in Demon Seed, um, this one uh, in, instead decides to take over the entire world's supply of weapons for the good of mankind and end all war through the domination um of of man but uh sean for for you what was what was your first experience with this one what stood out to you on first watch you know about five years ago i got obsessed with james bridges who is the screenwriter of this movie and who had a fascinating career as a director and also you know got to start working writing in tv 
for Alfred Hitchcock Presents and shows like that. But, you know, this is the guy who directed The China Syndrome and The Paper Chase and Urban Cowboy. And, you know, was oh, a wrote, he, he wrote White Hunter Blackheart. He did. Yes. I mean, wow. I think that Clint, I think Clint changed that script quite a bit, but he did mm. write the screenplay for that film. Um, and is, is I, you know, it's perhaps the most underrated filmmaker of the late 70s and early 80s. So about five years ago, I started getting obsessed with everything that he had done and kind of trying to track everything down because he's not as well chronicled and I couldn't I literally couldn't find Colossus the Forbin project other than on a, a stray Vimeo link that someone had up, uploaded to the internet and since then <laughs> it has been like issued on Blu-ray and it's available to purchase on you know Apple and iTunes and Amazon and all those places but it felt like a little bit of a lost object and it's a very strange movie because it collides two things I really really like one is as I said the sort of tense post 2001 science fiction film but it's also mm -hmm. a Halls of Power movie. Like it's a very similar to like Seven Days in May, Doctor Strangelove, Failsafe. Mm. Yeah, you know, Doctor Strangelove and Failsafe hugely. That was what I was thinking about a lot while watching this. Yeah, yeah. Cold War thrillers, right? And, that are, uh, and like important men in rooms being concerned about the future. And I just really like those kinds of movies. And so it brought those two things together. It's not nearly as good as any of those movies. So I don't want anybody to go in <laughs> expecting a failsafe esque masterpiece. But it's no. an amazing like object of curiosity for the time. You know, it's like a post summer of love story about fucking and a robot. <laughs> and it's 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 a lot of fun, even though it's incredibly sober at the same time with one of yeah. the more dour endings of the early seventies. Yeah, it has, it has more of like a, like I was I was surprised while watching it because it definitely uh, like makes its way to a very bleak kind of 70s ending. Uh, but it does so in a way that I just found like strangely kind of like slow and creeping and kind of dry in an interesting yeah. way. Like it, it, yeah. it feels like Sargent approached it. And, you know, unlike what we'll talk about in Demon Seed, where there is this there's this very thick atmosphere to that film. This one, mm -hmm. it, it has some paranoid thriller elements to it and some scenes that crop up. But for the most part, it definitely feels more akin to just like reading. It, it felt like when I was when I would read sci fi, it has like a mm -hmm. very spare, functional visual style to it. It's very much highlighting the mundanity of the these men in their boardrooms and in the gray suits and all these sort of like analog tech of everything that they do. And you could tell it almost right off the bat when it starts on like this creepy typewriter credits all over the, you know, machinery and the technology and the lights and the dials and the compartments and everything like that, eventually mm -hmm. pulling out from the intricacies to basically see the full room sized Colossus computer dwarfing Dr. Forbin, obviously. Yeah. yeah and, and yeah. you know, he, he throws in a couple cool little low angle shots and sort of overhead images interspersed throughout this opening to kind of give you the idea that, you know, man is about to be, uh, ha have his power challenged from him a little bit yeah there's um, also this but, like calculated uh kind of vibe to it too with how it's shot like there's a lot of very um symmetrical and still frames like the one where he's crossing the bridge for instance and um it's just like this bird's eye view very symmetrical and then they turn around and as they're closing it, it's the same way it just feels very calculated much like the the characters in the laboratory themselves yeah, which is which is interesting because, you know, the rest of the film, like as soon as we find out kind of like what the premise is and like we see that this is all inside an underground base in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the mountains. And again, uh, an idea that's going to crop up in both of these films is also the sort of the natural versus the tech world a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
um, there's a lot of times where human characters in order to escape the computer, like go outside and observe the beautiful vistas and stuff like that. Um, but, but, but in this case it is like, you know, here's Mr. Dr. Forbin, who's just built this computer, huge success. The president in the media is waiting outside to congratulate him and, you know, do a white house press conference where they are going to announce the defense of the free world is now the responsibility of this advanced machine, which is going to monitor all electronic devices and transmissions and data communications and it is completely self-sufficient and self-generating and impenetrable and anytime someone says words like that in a movie like this you just have to go oh wonderful (laughs) this is gonna (laughs) work out perfectly they've cracked the code for the first time um Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One thing I appreciate is that there's not a lot of throat clearing about that. It's literally within five minutes. We're like, this isn't going to work out. You know, this thing is yeah. going to have a mind of its own pretty quickly. <laughs> a lot of times they really like, you know, like I think of a movie like Contact. Contact kind of takes its time to reveal its true science fiction fiction nature. This is mm-hmm. just like this robot has advanced far too quickly this supercomputer is going to be in charge in in a short period of time but the one thing that i really like about this movie is that it's not just one supercomputer it's a it's a it's a pair of supercomputers that that's sort of very true in the darkness you know like strangers in the night and find each other and then seek each other out so it's, it's kind of a romance odd. when you think about it love. it yeah. is <laughs> it's a love story honestly and that's kind of and, and then there's you know i mean we'll, i'm sure we'll talk about it. like there is also this idea of um privacy that mm-hmm. Forbin yes. and Dr. Cleo like are pursuing in an attempt to kind of draw out and get some private space so that they can maneuver around Colossus's strategy to take over the world but uh, it's this um it's an odd meditation on these very exciting and uh kind of like emotionally volatile things but told in like the stiffest most sterile manner you can ever imagine Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like stiff even, and sterile. Exactly how I would describe the experience of watching this movie. <laughs> yeah, because even in the like Demon Seed, they end up adding kind of a a voice to the AI a bit. But when they get to the voice with Colossus, it's very much just like a dry, monotone, robotic kind of thing. There's still like, um, you know, there's there's a complete lack of humanity with the Colossus machine. Whereas they kind of almost try to make it a little bit more human it's it's you know deceivingly that's uh, that way in demon seed but with with colossus is just very straightforward with it um oh it, it gets a little maniacal and kind of un, unhinged whereas this it's like no it, it is just following the programming yeah. logic of ending wars yeah which exactly. is right don't trust humans with their weapons is the ultimate thing i need <laughs> to dominate man and so that man can't be trusted with these weapons that they're going to use on each other ultimately is the kind of idea it comes with but i i do love that in the opening you know like they're very excited and there's a couple off kilter elements like some you know some shots that are filming the human faces through like the broadcasting camera monitors and the mm-hmm. way that the, the the you know the camera will dolly through the press conference highlighting sort of like the you know over looming presence of this giant computer but before everyone can get too happy and drunk sean's right like almost immediately they're like the computer starts sending warnings they're like there is another system out there and and i i also like that the system communicates because jamie was mentioning that they uh you know they eventually give it a voice but it takes a long time for this to get a voice most of this movie is the colossus communicating via these giant text bars that it that it types out Mm -hmm. um yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's telling them, you know, there's a Soviet system out there and that means that, you know, either, you know, it's been built first and even better.
better or or that you know the colossus has even more computational power than they thought and can even detect more things than they thought or maybe there's a russian agent i love that they immediately come to like four different conclusions about the idea of what this warning means <laughs> the paranoia just but, continues it just grows <laughs> yeah but, I just, but i also love that the sense of like formal tension of it is like how slow the communication device yes. is that it, yes <laughs> i love that, that clattering teletype sound you know it's like an old cash register pumping out an old receipt you know like that exactly sound design is so cool yeah, yeah. And, and Forbin is constantly being like, you know, but you you can't you have to speak with very precise exacting language because, you know, you don't this thing is going to take whatever you say completely literally. And at the same time, it's going to take like an entire minute to respond in a sentence because it can only do like two or three words kind of at a time. And it's just constantly typing to them on their big screen. Um, but they they eventually do get concerned about this additional computer and they give the Colossus the permission to go and communicate with this computer and have this uh, romantic connection with the Soviet computer, which seems on its face like a really terrible idea. But the president gives the go ahead and they develop their own language using like arithmetic and calculus, which uh, gets them even more uh, paranoid because they're like, oh, no, now these commu- these computers are communicating with one another and we don't know what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also love the um, the presentation on the uh, like when they start to show the surveillance of the computer, like you were mentioning some of the shots where they kind of turn into, you know, you can see kind of like the data and they do focuses on people's faces, but also like when they mm-hmm. cut back to the camera themselves. And a lot of the time it's the, the camera as the eyes and they have like lights behind them and it almost makes like a face almost. Um, and yeah. they, they do a similar thing, not, not as much with the lights making like a full face, but they do a similar thing with demon seed uh, too, which we'll get to of course. But, um, I like that it essentially becomes the camera itself becomes like the the window to uh, communicating with with the with the AI. It's kind of like the only it, it's essentially their eyes. Right. So it kind of is like the only human thing in a sense where they're looking at something and talking to them, something that's physically there, I guess. Mm-hmm. I there's also, there's cool. also something really fascinating about the way the movie is cast because it it does remind me of 2001 in a lot of different ways. But one of them is, you know, Cure Delay is this sort of like blank affectless performer and his interaction with Hal raises this question of sort of like who is the human and who is the AI and this is not a person with like scintillating charisma and that seems like a purposeful choice that Kubrick makes and the same is true for almost the entire cast of Colossus like Mm -hmm. it is a series of people who you've probably seen before but no one that you would ever say oh I love that person you know or like I'm so (laughs) attracted to their energy like everyone is just kind of banal like handsome in a dull way you know the the idea of like sexuality is very muted the idea of even like power and leadership amongst the president or the director of the cia or the the russian premier there's something very tight about Mm -hmm. everything that's happening in the movie very controlled and so it allows colossus really to be the star i mean colossus is the main character of the movie yeah yeah i also like like speaking of like the control i like um House like there's a lot of moments where they kind of uh, like we were talking about the the camera spin around the room when they're working on the the AI itself and it's it represents both I think like you know th- uh, the the AI watching them as well as just a, a great way of showing like these people at work in their entire space but I also like the uh, kind of the high tech reveals that they have in this like when they're just in a random room I think it's with the president and they're talking about something and they talk about having to. 
um, go into a different room to discuss communications. And then this big curtain, like black curtain, just kind of starts to to lift up and reveal a whole communications computer room on the other side. And there's just these um, these like 70s ideas of high tech that I really thought were interesting. And I like just how, uh, I don't know, I've, I've always liked the way that se- like the 70s kind of visualized uh, the future in some way because I don't think like they have uh, video calls in this as well and I didn't think that was a thing in the in the 70s so um, <laughs> it was uh, it was just cool for them to I always love seeing those ideas from the past and especially ones that have kind of they, they become a reality for us so the science fi- fiction authors were dreaming of how we would uh, one day communicate have FaceTime <laughs> yeah uh, exactly yeah, yeah. with, with- it does remind movies. me of the vid call in uh, in Blade Runner, right? Like it's very similar the way that it's kind yeah. of executed and works. It's not quite a payphone, but it's 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 close. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, well, well, and and what's interesting too is that obviously all of that sort of like technological de- development is then tied to this sort of overwhelming danger that is mm-hmm. is on top of it where the the scariness of their situation is amplified by the idea of well now our computer is communicating with a soviet computer and also has control of our weapons and their weapons and we don't know what they're saying or what secrets they're sharing with anybody and it's so funny that like the the overwhelming threat of what they have created is actually a better sort of like healing tool between the countries because both the Americans and Russians are like, oh shit, I guess we should cooperate with one another, right? You yeah. know, to shut these machines down and break these communications and, you know, because like they're they're about to overthrow all of us and like straight up the Colossus like, if Link not restored, action will be taken immediately. And by action, it's saying like, yeah, we're going to launch missiles at like random oil fields and army bases <laughs> and just start all kinds of nuclear war that you guys are going to have to deal with. And part of the uh, interest in them agreeing to reestablish the connection between the computers is not even that it's going to happen, but it's that they don't want to know that they they did it. Like there's this whole like cover, like sort of like media cover up because they don't want it to be revealed that they've been all been strong armed by their own computer system yeah, <laughs> that they just announced at press conferences. <laughs> there's at one point in the, in the movie where I was starting to think they were going to do this almost funny idea where the, the AIs came together so that they could <laughs> create a situation in which the, 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 the humans had to, you know, properly communicate and come together and find. Yeah. The peace computers were going to go Dr. Manhattan mode grand scheme the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They were doing it for the good. It, yeah, it, I, there are some moments in there that are are pretty humorous. In, in we that created sense. world peace by, <laughs> yeah. by by doing this. Yeah. Do you think that we've had experiences like that that we don't know about, where um, news has been in in our country has been propagandized by the government at this level? Like there is there is some some massive cover up happening in in Russia during yeah. the film. Yeah. I would believe it for sure. Roswell, come on now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, but but it, but it also gets into uh, as Sean was pointing out, and I think in a more interesting way as the film gets into more of its second half, and is the uh, surveillance aspect of it, the early mm-hmm. surveillance aspect of it, which would obviously tap into an entire uh, '70s paranoid genre. We just talked about like the parallax view on the show not that mm-hmm. long ago, and it was something I thought a little bit about during one of the espionage sequences that that. Uh, takes place in this totally. um 
But there's this element where Colossus is now, you know, tapping into the White House phone um, and he is taking full control of the human bodies through the power where he's being like, you know, I want Forbin in all caps. Uh, Colossus <laughs> is 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 typing. And is, if action is not taken, you know, then he is going to, you know, start blowing more things up or he's going to blow up Washington. I think he says at one point. Um, but because because at this point, Forbin is like, you know, he's. He's like, okay, we need to shut down this computer and we need to do it without the computer knowing it. So he's on like full on like international spy missions to the lead architect of like the Russian computer. And there's like these cool helicopter shots and these like long paranoia thriller zooms that are being done of men in suits Mm -hmm. meeting with one another, conversing privately, trading documents, all this kind of stuff Um, that results in a pretty cool sequence where the computer straight up assassinates the lead architect of the Russian computer by basically threatening the Russian government that, you know, it's going to, you know, launch one, launch one of their missiles. Uh, but we don't see that. We only see it. We only hear that that's the reason it happened after the fact. Mm-hmm. What we get is the vision of the uh, just designer being assassinated and executed. And it gives the impression almost that the computer is like controlling the people who did it, even though really it's just, you know, just threatening them in order to do it. But it's a it's a creepy little sequence, I thought. One of the more yeah. like tense moments in the film. It kind of gives off yeah, the commentary on like the paranoia that would be going on at that time, too, just given that it's. Like, eventually things do happen where, you know, the the computer says a a certain threat and then does that thing. But at first it almost feels like they're killing their own men just because they're like, well, this could happen because this AI is so uh, hyper intelligent. Um, And I just I think it directly relates to that paranoia, that that kind of circular paranoia that was happening at the time. Yeah, it's also like for a movie that is an otherwise like austere war room kind of film just turns into a bond movie for 15 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. It's just just a huge, just a huge tonal shift. It's all about set pieces. It's all about location. Like the movie otherwise like really has nothing to do with that with the exception of some of the exterior shots of the, you know, the, where the base is, but Mm -hmm. it's a, it's an indoor movie, you know, except for this little kind of exciting. It almost feels like a studio note in a way where it's like, we got to get out of outside and we got to get a gun. You know, we got to have a moment where someone gets shot (laughs) because the movie is otherwise just like, we want to put some shots in the trailer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is a thriller. Sometimes we promise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and, and that's what's just interesting about the moment is because Sergeant has taken such like a I don't know, I guess kind of like a like a restrained mm-hmm. uh, approach to the filmmaking. This execution almost seems like it happens like a piece of like robotic machinery. It's just like, you know, they're meeting with a guy. All of a sudden, all these men in suits are there. He's gone. Forbin is taken into the helicopter and taken back to the base where he's basically like put in, you know, like sent to his room. He's put on detention. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's just like, I, uh, you know, Colossus is like, Forbin, you know, I love you. You're my creator. I need you. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're going to be on 24-hour surveillance now, and any disobedience uh, that you you do is going to cause a uh, missile to Washington. It results in him, like, doing these more comedic... This is where the movie gets a little bit sillier for me, in, in sure, kind of yeah. a fun way, but in kind of a way that, once again, does seem to disrupt a little bit of the fabric of what it's been going for the whole time. When he mm-hmm. starts, like, micromanaging his entire day down to... the like down to a science of it where it's like you exercise from this time to this time you shower you eat breakfast <laughs> and it results you fuck. In, yeah and it results in this <laughs> hilarious plan yeah. where he needs to pretend that one of his scientists uh susan clark 
is his mistress so that he can get <laughs> privacy when they want to have sex. And that's the excuse for it. Um, that scene where he explains it to her, I couldn't help but think like this was just his elaborate plan to get a date with her the entire time. It was all time. a ruse. <laughs> yeah. It was all a ruse. He's like, he's like I'm going to make this giant supercomputer during the Cold War and I'm going to get that date. I'm telling you. Well, and, and, and but also the Colossus also has like a bit of sense of humor about it. Like Colossus <laughs> yeah. starts like berating him about like how much sex he needs. He's just, he's arguing him down. He's being like, well, you know, you don't really need it every night. Like, what about like four <laughs> nights a week? You know, like oh, that, that, that feels more reasonable for a, a human man of, of your age. And it also takes place in a scene where it's a very 60s scene of the Colossus <laughs> berating him for putting too much vermouth in his martini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, some... and again, this almost does. I think Sean's almost right. These have these feel like they have to have been studio notes from like the Bond era where they're like, well, can Eric? Braden like drink a martini and can the computer like tell him how to make the perfect martini like, yeah can he not be the just the most boring person of all time while this is I, I, I haven't read the um the original novel DF Jones's novel but I will say James Bridges is his sense of humor is very underrated I mean the movie that he his directorial debut came out the same year as Colossus and it's called the baby maker I don't know if you guys are familiar with this one it stars a very young Barbara Hershey and it's about a hippie girl who's hired by a middle-class family to give birth to a child. And it's like, it's a drama, but it has a lot of comedy in it. And he has like a real perverse sense of humor, especially around the conventions of sex. I mean, he, this is the guy who made urban cowboy. Like this is something that he's interested in. So right. I, I think that everything that you, those, those odd quirks of story where you're like, why did, why, where's this tonal whiplash coming from feels to me most like James Bridges. Cause you know, Joseph Sargent, like you guys know, if you've, if you've seen his movies, he makes yeah. these like very sturdy character driven mission movies mm -hmm. and yes, you know, like white lightning and taking a Pelham and even like the TV movies he made in the eighties. Like he never made another science fiction movie. He doesn't really evince much interest in the like formal nature of the storytelling, but he mm -hmm. is like really good with people talking in rooms. And so I, my gut is that Bridges was like, I have some jokes I want to get off. And so this, <laughs> this was how he thought about it. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. He was like, he's like, what, what if we had an extended date sequence where uh, Eric Braden, Susan Clark need to perform this romantic date night and literally strip in front of the Colossus cameras yeah. before entering the bedroom just to have a conversation about how, you know, they need to find a way to overpower the computer without him actually, you know, watching and seeing them doing it. But it's also done in this like, you know, Eric Braden, he's sexy, he's under the sheets and, you know, yeah. and he's just like, you know, I, I, I don't have any. Uh, put any hope in uh, in in sabotaging the system. We need to focus on the weapons. And while he's like, meanwhile, he's like making googly eyes, and he, he's wearing no clothes, and it's just yeah. it's, what's also, it's kind of hilarious. Honestly, I enjoyed it. It is it's, the way they shoot it too is kind of uh, funny, and and I don't like it, it's it's still oddly dry, but there still seems to be some humor implied. The shot it, of her they, nude, but through the wine glass yes. or whatever was a great shot. Like that's, that's from Austin Powers, which is like, well, yeah. obviously <laughs> later on, but it's just funny that they, like that same idea was, was used yeah. in a more slightly more serious way in this, in this movie. Um, and they do a similar thing too, when they go into the bedroom and I believe um, uh, Susan Clark is, it's either Susan Clark or Eric are standing behind the person that's in the bed and their head as they lay down is blocking their private parts the entire time. <laughs> so I was like, this is some great nudity choreography right now. Pretty good. I think there's also like the conspiracy thriller is obviously usually considered a drama, but there are some really good 
conspiracy comedies like the president's analyst um, with James Coburn as an example. Like it, it is a weirdly a, a good format for this kind of storytelling. I just don't think mm-hmm. the movie was sold that way, nor is the first 40 minutes really like representative of anything funny. But then it, <laughs> right. when it makes that pivot, it is like it, it makes you reappreciate the movie because the first time I watched the film, I was like, this movie is borderline incoherent. Like it is not <laughs> really it doesn't really know what it wants to be and it doesn't totally work. And for whatever reason, I tried it again. And the second time I watched it, I was like, this is kind of a masterpiece of like hopscotching around different styles within the same format. (laughs) And (laughs) the sex stuff is kind of what jumps out to me. The whole idea of outwitting the supercomputer while also, Jamie, as you point out, trying to nail your coworker is like (laughs) such a genius move in a story that I came to really appreciate the movie more. Yeah, so that's a few. It does feel like a Don Draper move a little bit at at that point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the um, only thing that I could come up with. <laughs> this is how we defeat it. Uh, yeah, but but it, and and what's interesting is that it you know it pivots from you know like we need to pull off this almost like domestic sex comedy stuff in order to have these private conversations and kind of like avoid the surveillance and make it look like we're doing something that's you know not serious because you know part of it is that they're they're performing for for the computer mm-hmm. um, and it does lead into some more like classic kind of like sergeant mission stuff as 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 Sean was putting it in in the sort of like tense elements like some of the sequence i'm thinking about in this section are like when they realize that they have to do a manual realignment of the uh, missile modules and Mm -hmm. they realize that what if they took that opportunity to put in some dummy ones and reduce the firepower of the computers because like what could you know they would be like yeah we'll just reduce it to a giant calculator if it didn't have fucking like bombs to shoot at us (laughs) so 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 it does lead into a sequence that reminded me of a little bit of taking a pelham where they're you know they were taking the real ones out putting the dummy ones in but it's done in this like tense voyeuristic oversight from the computer like analyzing their every movement while they're doing the swap and the camera is like dollying around the crew who's watching them we're seeing the sweat on their brows while they're like hopefully the computer doesn't spot what we're doing and there's some control monitoring imagery as well and yeah it just reminded me of some of that planning and orchestration of the ground level workers in taking of Pelham, even though I will say it's not quite as thrilling of a maneuver as trying to figure out how to logistically move $1 million across town. That's (laughs) just like an undefeatable uh, task (laughs) to give characters. That's just so much hilarity. Like that dude on the bike, uh, who's who's like, I'm not getting out of the way of these fucking cop cars in that movie. So there's nothing quite on that level, but it's definitely the most I was thinking about Sargent's other films. I I, and I think after this is when, um, he eventually gets the the voice itself. It is actually pretty late into the movie before he gets the uh, the AI voice. Um, but I did find it kind of funny, and I, it feels unpurposely humorous. Where the, I think the first thing the robot says is, "This is the voice of unity," and I just thought that that was really <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> like, I, I bring, bring you peace. peace. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's the first thing that he says after we've seen everything else in the context of this movie is just that was very funny to me, and it's so monotone because yeah, well, there's no yeah, there's like a, I said, it's exactly. just a robot voice. It's just one note. Yeah, there's the there's time. a flat monotone to it, but there is one really creepy, and I think. Really really good use of it. One of the strongest moments in, in the film, in my opinion, is uh, when some of the crew members try to overload the mainframe and kill it. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and uh, they get essentially executed out back and their bodies are left to rot as like a symbol of their disobedience because the Colossus is really starting to like flex the military power that it now has. But the uh, the element of Brayden like and Forbin like figuring out that that is what's happening is in this very flat monotone delivery while they're playing chess uh together and basically we can hear him go uh and and bishop to rook three and then gunshots go off in the background and it's like a close-up of brain's face like realizing that his friends just got shot in the head like yeah 30 feet away from him while the computer was announcing its move yeah and and i think the computer even says like specifically when it's looking at the bodies it's like the bodies will remain in my sight for 24 hours and then be cremated and so it's just kind of yeah. like, like, like there's no, you know, there's no service, no funeral, no memorial, no anything. Just I'm going to you can look at them rot for for a day and then and then I'm just going to destroy them completely. Yeah, there's even like, like a time lapse uh, little moment where like the it, it changes to night and he's looking at the exact same images of their bodies still yeah. being there. And, and with you know, um, the, 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 the one thing that, that I feel that this did need is that it needed Brayden to go a little bit more out of control or like yeah, a little bit more tormented or tortured or something. Because even when this gets to the very last moments when the computer is straight up being like, you know, uh, obey me and live or disobey and die. And, you know, he's laying out his entire plan of being being like, you know, I'm going to blow up these missile facilities. I'm going to take full control. And this is going to be, you know, under my absolute authority, all of your issues are going to be solved. You're not going to have famine or overpopulation or disease. We're going to uncover all the mysteries of the universe and we can all coexist. And you're going to say that you don't have freedom anymore. But, you know, by being dominated by me, humankind is going to like prevail and it is going to live longer and you need to like work with me to be a part of this and it's so funny that when it gets to Forbin's like the ending of the film is it announcing that and being like Forbin you're going to work for me unwillingly at first on your part but it's going to pass at, at some point you are going to regard me not only with respect and awe but with love and Forbin just goes with a very flat just never Mm-hmm. That's it. And I was almost expecting and I don't know if it would have made it better, but I was expecting like the never. Yeah, like the, well, I expected him to be like freaking the fuck out and losing his mind or something. But no, he he, he remains affectless basically to the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, the person that they originally wanted for the Forbin part was Charlton Heston. And so, you know, this is just a few. Yeah, years and I also saw Soylent Gregory Green. Peck was in the running. Yes, and at Gregory one point. Peck, too. And I, yeah. you know, Peck maybe a little bit less so. But, you know, if Heston was there. Just the whole pursuit, like the whole Forbin portrayal would have been far more keyed up, way more intense, way more kind of like intensely adversarial with Colossus. There's something (laughs) Mm -hmm. really muted about Brayden. And I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time watching The Young and the Wrestle, so forgive me. But is his like (laughs) acting style monotone and and, like it is? No, it is. It oh, just okay. is. Yeah, that's just this is just who he is. I, I've, I've seen everything I've seen together. him. That's Maybe someone if any listener out there has seen him deliver a different t- style of performance. I've seen him come up in a couple different movies, including, you know, a really unhinged movie with Eric Roberts uh, by Larry Cohen called The Ambulance. Like that's an insane movie. And he's doing the same delivery as like the evil, uh, right. you know, sort of like doctor who's kidnapping people off the street. Like he's like a villain yeah. in that film and he's still not hamming it up that much. Yeah, even when <laughs> yeah, he has that first moment where the um they, they get the news that the the one missile did land in that small town in 
in Russia somewhere, I believe, and it took out like mm-hmm. an entire population. Uh, his and I get kind of like his reaction is kind of muted, and I think that's just because he can't. It's like you don't see it in front of you, and he's kind of processing it. So I kind of understood that. And you see a little bit of a more emotion when he actively watches some of his colleagues get shot. But even then, it's not as big as you'd probably expect it to be. But there's there's a slight progression, I guess, in how he processes the death that's happening around him. It's just, yeah, it, yeah, is, no. it is pretty it, muted. I, I, I expected it to have the uh, Planet of the Apes Heston <laughs> yeah, going totally. crazy kind of yeah. moment by the end or something. But yeah. Or, or uh, even, even when the computer's berating him for his drunkenness, I was <laughs> like, dude, Heston would have like overplayed the shit out of that. It would have been a blast. <laughs> yeah, completely. It's, it's a really, it's a really odd choice, but I guess if if we can psychologize it maybe the thinking is that by having a kind of dignity in the face of the fascism of colossus that somehow he is sort of like overwhelming the 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 sort of i don't know total control of the computer like otherwise i don't it's mm-hmm. the, the way that the film ends is so strange it is yeah, so it pretty jarred by flat. it <laughs> And and so quick, and when it ends, you're like, wait, what? And yeah, I really didn't. Understand. You're like, oh, that's it. The, the computer, computer just won. Yeah, that's <laughs> what it world felt domination. Like. It, it felt like world domination happened from the computer, but then Erica's just like, no. But you don't really get to, you don't really get to see what happens after that or anything. So you're like, I understand he's standing up for himself and humanity and all that, but it still seems like the problem persists and there's a lot. He's more not going to win. Yeah, well, right? here. And, well, and and considering how much of the film is built around like tense little set pieces that are meant to be like human resistance, it's it really doesn't feel like he's putting up that much of a resistance uh, yeah, at the very it's end just of the film. Like, so nah, I'm not going to love you. Yeah, That's <laughs> not doing it. I don't think so. But I will be your but, slave. Uh, I will say I did appreciate I did appreciate Braden's delivery of uh, Frankenstein ought to be required reading for all scientists. And I was like, oh, 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 (laughs) I see what you're saying. (laughs) This is an on the nose film at a time when we needed on the nose films. I mean, the thing is, is like the movie does presage like kind of every concept of totalizing AI in the movies. I mean, The Matrix, Terminator 2. Uh, yep. you know, David from Prometheus, uh, Ex mm-hmm. Machina, like all these movies are all kind of cribbing. We think they're cribbing from Hal and they are cribbing from Hal. But this this movie actually has a little bit more in common with most of those movies because mm-hmm. it is about an AI that is effectively trying to take over the entire world and yeah. and ha- have a sense of like um, non-denominational power. You know, that's just like logic bound power that is more thought through, I think, even than the Hal experience. Which is interesting because yeah. it takes a while for more. Well, because the like Howl one is around. almost like personal or like metaphysical. Yeah. It, it feels it, like it, a rivalry. More, yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas this definitely has that element that you would get in like the first Terminator film, where it is just right. like an, apoc- an apocalyptic, you know, sort of extension of technological progress being made by by mankind. Right. So there's there's something broader about it. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. I think um, I thought of the the two movies because it was like the chat GPT moment and the moment when, you know, AI was drawing portraits of people, you know, climbing mountains. And uh, I don't have like an inherent fear of AI, but I am fascinated by it. I don't really, I try not to use it if possible. I mean, do you guys, you must've hit on this on the show before. I mean, has there been another example that you've hit on with a, with a movie where it's like the, the fear is the science that we've created. Oh, definitely. Oh, I'm I sure. Just, um, but I, I, nothing's coming to mind like immediately, but all of our listeners will yell at us and be like, of course, they've talked <laughs> yeah. about 30 of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was, what was that one? Um, it's, uh, 
Oh man, I'm drawing. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I, I can't. I, there, there's one that was dealing specifically with that, and it's about a scientist that he he dives too far into it. I'm just trying to think of um, the director, but I don't know. We can continue. I'll, I'll maybe look it up and see if I can. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah I think I think we have reached the end of uh, Colossus the Forbin project, so I think that we are going to uh, pivot into the reductive rating round, uh, which uh, Sean, I'm, I'm sure you know already, but it's our section of the show where we reduce the number between a movie between uh, one and and five, and it's also final statements or anything that we didn't get to while we were talking about it. Um, but for me, uh, the uh, Col- Colossus the Forbin project, I it, it gets kind of a solid three for me like despite some yeah. of the obvious flaws um in that it, it it does have some like kind of like wonky gear shifts in terms of sort of style and tone i thought overall um it's pretty solid paranoid like literary science fiction that you know it, again it doesn't quite achieve as thrilling of a mix as some of the things that we were bringing up and comparing it to like terminator or 2001 or failsafe or dr strange love or um you know like like you know sort of that kind of cold war paranoia and sort of the uh, apocalyptic terror of our the technological progress that mankind is making but sergeant does make it pretty well and he definitely is intentionally giving it a kind of deliberately low-key kind of functional momentum mm-hmm. um, to it. And one could probably argue that, I mean, Braden is even just a reflection of that. That, uh, But I, I mean, I think if the argument you're trying to make is that uh, humans and machines are different, that uh, <laughs> you're unfortunately not making that argument with Braden's performance. But I do find the, st- <laughs> the choice of doing that in style kind of interesting because as Sean put it, the computer's kind of the main character. Um, yeah. And this almost does kind of have like a visual style that serves a story of machinery dominating man mm-hmm. quite well, um, I thought. And it does have some nice tense moments to it of surveillance paranoia and supercomputers like ordering the executions of people and controlling, you know, sort of fleshy bodies. And 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 it does have some sillier kind of dated elements that sounds like they might have been Bridges uh, uh, contributions that I also, despite the weirdness of them, I kind of like them, like the sex comedy elements and <laughs> the computer you know trying to teach him how to make the perfect uh, martini and yeah, those parts you know, actually like humanize a, the humans more <laughs> in this yeah like that that's probably the one section of the film where you're like oh so yeah they are trying to you know fight for something that they have that computers don't have and computers right. don't understand like yeah you can't have sex every night why not fuck you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i do what i want um so yeah it's, it's a solid three for me and i also did note while i was looking up the film and trying to you know get a little bit of research done on sergeant too apparently ron howard and will smith have been trying to remake this for over a decade i yeah. thought that was kind of funny for some reason yeah i thought when i, I, I saw i'm trying will to smith, imagine I that thought the next paragraph was going to be and they turned it into irobot <laughs> or whatever yeah <laughs> but um, yeah why does will smith need to remake this movie if he made irobot that doesn't make any sense <laughs> yeah I, I i really don't understand oh and actually one thing we somehow didn't mention that i just am seeing at the last second in my notes here mm. uh the score uh, the score. I really liked the music by um, the yeah. French composer Michel uh, Colombier, um, which has like it has like a weird creep factor to it. Like it's either yeah. the, these pounding kind of like drum sounds or like these off kilter would almost sound like like xylophone kind of sounds. Mm. Um, yeah. And this dude 
such a cool career. He started out working for Jean-Pierre Melville and Jacques Demy in France. And by the 80s and 90s was doing more like jazzier noir stuff. Like he did the James Woods movie Cop. He did Bill Duke's Deep Cover. Oh, uh, he even did Purple awesome. Rain with uh, with Prince as well as New Jack City from uh, Mario Van Peebles. So I was like such a varied and diverse uh, career. And I only looked it up because I heard some weird ass sounds in this movie. And they were kind of selling more of the tension than even some of the visual style was. So totally good score. There, the way that it opens even has this like it's or it's orchestra based, but it's it's like just like filled with reverb. So it has mm. this kind of distance to it and kind of this creepiness and and I don't know. I think like just the added effects and there might even be like some filters on it and stuff. It kind of gives off that high tech vibe a little bit, but mixed with the classical orchestra stuff. So that was cool. I did. Yeah, I did like the music. Um, I'm right there with you. I think it's a, a solid three. Um, I do. I do enjoy a lot of it. Um, it is just a little bit too dry uh, a, a lot of the time. Um, the, the moments that I started to, to spark up were what you mentioned, like the, the kind of sex com- strange sex comedy stuff. Uh, I thought the movie does look great. I thought the cinematography was really well done. I love the shots of it, like uh, steady camming slowly around the entire space. And they are a lot yeah, of the time. Shout out to Gene Polito of uh, Westworld fame. Yeah, yeah, he's, <laughs> it's, it's really good stuff. And, and a lot of the time, too, just using that, they're in that office t- in a ton of the movie. And they utilize the space pretty well with like a lot of camera angles that are representative of the security cameras that are looking down on them or just the whole space itself. Um, the camera moves along really smoothly as things open up. Like, like I was saying earlier with that curtain opening and showing the, the computer room that people are working in. It just, it does look really, really good. I just, I, I needed a little bit more, um, uh, I don't know, humanity, honestly, from some of the human uh, <laughs> uh, acting here and, and just performances and, and characterization in general. But I do understand that they're also representing like a, you know, a very prestigious, pristine environment where people are uh, um, working on these. They're supposed to have it under control, dignified, yeah. as Sean put it, I think. Yeah, was right. yeah, yeah. totally, yeah. <laughs> totally. So I, I do understand those choices sometimes. I just think it could have used a little more. So, um, but yeah, I thought it was, it was solid. And I do like seeing you know, the, the fears of AI, uh, from the seventies and stuff. And I mean, some of, you know, it's, it's kind of topical now, especially with, uh, you know, uh, chat GPT and, and some of the, the artwork that's being created. So it was, uh, it was cool to dive into. Um, well, obviously I picked the film, but even though I picked it, it's still a three, it's a flawed movie. It has an odd tone and it is, it is like a imprecise movie about precision, which I find fascinating, <laughs> but it is, it, it's been fun to kind of break down. The thing that I am always interested in with, especially 70s films, is what was the studio that made the movie doing at that time? And so this is kind of like right at the dawn of New Hollywood. This is from Universal. And so, you mm-hmm. know, this movie was released in the spring of 70. And in that same kind of, you know, 18, 24 month period, you get Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Diary of a Mad Housewife, Puzzle of a Downfall Child. You get all of these really so good. Yeah, provocative, fascinating character studies. But also, this is the studio in that period that gave you the Andromeda Strain, that gave you Silent Running, that gave you Slaughterhouse-Five, that gave you these kind of like meticulous, cold, um, very uh, restrained science fiction films. 
and I'd mm-hmm. like I'd love to know who the executive was at the studio that was like I have this, this is my taste and I only <laughs> make sci-fi in this exact way because all of those movies are all kind of part of the same story and they're kind of like the inversion of Demon Seed which is a, a crazy movie in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, but th- this one is this one doesn't really feel like a movie unlike say silent running doesn't really feel like a movie made by people who love science fiction it, ma- it feels like a movie made by people who like thrillers but um, it do- it's it's because it's bouncing around so much, it's kind of, and you know, James Bridges didn't make any science fiction either. Like it's almost like they're just mm-hmm. using it as a platform and not necessarily fully exploring the possibility the ideas. So it's a three for me. Yeah. I also, I did remember that uh, movie that I was going to mention, um, altered States. Remember that one, Josh? Oh, oh yeah. Altered one of my States, favorites of all time. Yeah, that's a yeah. good one. So yeah. that's, that's kind of one. Where one, one of my favorite scripts, Patty Chayefsky. Yeah. Right? I was, I, I was trying to take a look to see what AI stuff that we had talked about. And I, I realized somehow, somehow we both blanked on it. We literally talked about AI last week because technically deadly friend is an AI movie with the that's West Craven. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah of the, course. BB. I was like, he literally <laughs> has his song. He's like, BB, I'm BB and I'm going to fucking kill people with a basketball. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, that uh, that being said, I think that is going to uh, wrap it up for uh, Colossus, the Forbin Project. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about some uh, some seedier artificial <laughs> intelligence, just straight up uh, demon seed. So stick around. I am a mind without a body. My child shall live as man among others. Child? Yes. My child, and yours. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. All right, we are back, and we are talking Demon Seed, the 1977 American science fiction horror film directed by Donald... I didn't look this up. Donald Camel? Donald Camel? uh, And based on the 1973 novel of the same name by Mr. Dean Koontz. And I think this is our second time talking about Donald uh, Camel, the Mm -hmm. uh, Scottish filmmaker who uh, we talked about at length on his episode on White of the Eye because we were fascinated by this man's history because he uh, grew up the son of a poet uh, who basically had had an in to kind of like an upper class sort of like artist hangout life where he was like his dad was like making him hang around with like occultists and painters <laughs> and musicians and he eventually became a painter and a writer himself and basically just like got high and hung out with other artists and and musicians which eventually led to him uh, uh, writing and co-directing the 1970s psychedelic sort of sexual gangster art movie starring Mick Jagger performance uh, with mm-hmm. Nicholas Roeg, uh, who would go on to direct uh, Don't Look Now, starring Julie Christie, also the star um, of, of this film, and also about a uh, someone grieving a, a, a dead child and becoming estranged from their husband, strangely enough. It's a little bit of crossover here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, Camel, though, uh, was uh, reportedly a bit of an, an eccentric and uh, very difficult to work <laughs> with. He refused to compromise on a lot of his art, leading him to only doing uh, four films in his 25-year uh, career uh, and leaving quite a lot of unproduced and unreleased projects um, on 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 the ground, including projects with Vilmo Sigmund, projects with Marlon Brando, William Burroughs. Uh, and we know him best for his incredible, surreal American serial killer, practically giallo film. Yeah. 
white of the eye that on paper kind of sounds like nothing special about you know like kind of just about like an outwardly charming normal almost like patrick bateman type uh, who you know who kills who's actually who's instead of being like a wall street guy he he installs like home audio systems for people and kills the suburb suburban housewives yeah um but the way that camel managed to turn that film into just like this raw emotional existential expression and like you really feel the identity crisis of that film of that guy having these deep dark impulses he needs to unleash and it really centers his wife's point of view as well and what it must Mm. feel like to kind of like be in love with someone who is like a violent psychopath and who is hurting everyone around him and doing so to try to like cosmically transcend or like leave his artistic mark on the world, which he eventually does through suicide um, in that film. Yeah. Um, which uh, we ended up uh, eventually reading after the fact that we were like, Oh, Holy shit. Uh, he ended up basically killing himself in the same way mm-hmm. that he kind of depicted the character in that film doing it, where he tried to make it like a weird, like artistic sa- statement where he essentially so personal when you watch the f- especially the final like 15 minutes of white of the eye. It's just kind of devastating when you find out that information. Yeah. Cause like there's no question that the takeaway from that film is that, you know, like he has a genuinely hallucinatory uh, experimental style streak in him. He has an interest, uh, interest in the intersection of sort of like violent sex and art and a pretty fucked up relationship with his wife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All of those things seem to kind of come across in, in that film. And they were just kind of sent home a little bit by the fact that when he killed himself, he did it in a way where when he shot himself, he was still alive for, uh, quite a few minutes and so that he could have his wife hold a mirror up to him so that he could watch himself die. Yeah, um, Jesus Christ. So yeah, just like a really bizarre, um, uh, uh, figure and, um, knowing, you know, that kind of history about him and his interests in sort of the, the artistic expression and stuff, I can, I can definitely see why, even though he didn't write it, he might've been drawn to Dean R. Kuntz's material here in Demon Seed, mm-hmm. which is a story about a scientist who creates this, uh, organic AI supercomputer called Proteus. And I think unlike the Brayden character, you can kind of feel that the uh, main character here, Dr. Alex Harris, played by uh, Fritz Weaver, uh, has a little bit more of like a, like an like an, an artist streak in him uh, mm. that he kind of he's kind of proud of of his achievement beyond just like how he can sell it to the uh, you know the government defense contracting that he plans um, on on doing it and you can also feel that through Proteus who takes on more of like an actual personality to um, yeah. his his programming and inadvertently becomes obsessed um, <laughs> with. Uh, uh, Weaver's wife, Susan, played by Julie Christie, and basically uh, proceeds to, as the premise goes, forcefully imprison, terrorize, and uh, impregnate her. Uh, and we'll get into the specifics uh, <laughs> as we go into it, but I, I thought this overall was, you know, not a completely, again, sort of like Colossus, like not completely coherent, um, but a pretty interesting combo of the kind of like psychedelic sci-fi qualities that reminded me of something like Saul Bass's Phase 4, yeah, which I don't totally. know how we didn't bring that up on the last one either. That's another thing I was thinking about of, because um, it's not AI generated, but that's the... Um, 
the 2001 inspired uh, movie about the scientists in the Arizona desert declaring war on the hyper intelligent ants <laughs> who are forcing them to like evolve. And the final like psychedelic montage of that film where the ants are like, here's what a world is going to look like where we fucking dominate you. And it could be kind of cool. You know, yeah. <laughs> you should maybe just let it happen. Uh, so like that's that's another example of that. This has a little bit of that. And obviously some of the HAL 9000 inspiration from the AI betraying their human masters. But probably the thing that is most unique to this film and how it's taking those inspirations is that it, it is also combining it with the grieving parental anxiety of, of Don't Look Now as well, uh, including like a bit where it goes full. It's alive, like monster baby mode at the end. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and of course the, the central aspect of the, the woman's bodily autonomy and sort of sexual violence fears of something like Rosemary's baby. So it's kind of doing all of those things at once. And similarly to Sean, I will preface that by saying that despite name dropping all of those films, this film's not as good as all of those films. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's but not. it, uh, no. but it is, it is a cool combination of all of these various things that I feel like only could have come out, uh, when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you guys? Um, I just wanted to say this because um, it's it's kind of silly, but it, it, I always like to do it whenever it pops up on the show. Have you guys seen the uh, the Simpsons episode? Uh, it's a treehouse of horror with Pierce Brosnan as the AI, and Marge is trapped in the house, and he's fallen in love yes. with her. I was like, yes. I was always wondering what what that came from. I was like, Simpsons, why are you doing demon seed? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> it was wild because I I always loved that that little section in that episode. And I never knew where it was from. And as soon as this popped up and it started happening, I'm like, oh, it's Demon Seed. So I just I always love when that happens. So I had to mention it. It's only right, yeah. though, because I mean, I don't know about for you guys, but for me, I got switched on to a lot of these movies just by trying to understand Simpsons references, including totally. Planet of the Apes. So it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a reasonable pathway. Yeah, absolutely. The Simpsons taught me a lot more about old films than I I even realized. Because throughout the show, really, throughout the years we've been doing it, it, it's popped up at least a couple times a year. So it's just always interested me. Yeah. Well, Sean, what was uh, what was your first experience with uh, with with this one? What were the first impressions? <sighs> well, Josh, you said it. This is a movie that only could have been made at the exact time that it was made. I mean, it is like <laughs> a miraculous thing that a major corporation put this movie out. Um, I only I was I'd been aware of it for a while. I only saw it for the first time kind of deep in the pandemic when the Criterion Channel issued a series of 70s science fiction films and Mm -hmm. this was among them. It's a big MGM movie with Julie Christie at the the center of it. And I mean, this is this is Julie Christie's career in the 70s. McCabe and Mrs. Miller don't look now shampoo Nashville then demon seed (laughs) then heaven can wait. So which one is not like the yeah. others out of all of those? Yeah, Demon Seed. What, what is Demon Seed doing in there? <laughs> so, I mean, it's an amazing curio in her career because most people just don't know this movie and have not seen it. And you, you know, Josh, you outlined it. Donald Camel is such a strange figure. And for him, this is his only for hire job, his only real paycheck film. And he's a good fit for it, obviously, given some of the themes yeah. of this like this disfigured sexuality and this idea of like control of the mind state through technology and power. Um, But it is a very, very weird movie. And I agree that it doesn't Mm -hmm. totally hang together, but it is an awesome experiment in spending other people's money. And I think it's a lot (laughs) of fun to watch and a lot of fun to pick apart. Camel also has like, you know, a, a way more, 
sort of like stylish atmosphere that he is bringing to this that Sargent totally. wasn't bringing. And, and, and again, intentionally, so Sargent was opting. He was making choices on purpose in that film. But like this mm-hmm. one is shot by Bill Butler, um, who would have just been off shooting movies that you might have seen uh, in this era, like The Conversation and Jaws. And he even shot Peter Hyams as Capricorn One, which people might laugh at because it has uh, uh, OJ in it. But like it is actually like a pretty gorgeous little analog, uh, like paranoid thriller. Um, and he would eventually DP, you know, uh, you know, in the 80s, like all of the Rocky sequels and like Child's Play. So like this has like more of a claim to, I guess, uh, like horror thriller sensibility yeah, than mm-hmm. Sargent did, who definitely has more of like, a, you know, sort of a, an action mission based quality to him that that this doesn't have. And yeah, I was just immediately taken by even despite the silliness of the premise um, that I, I, I kind of found the mood of this to kind of be one of its strongest qualities. Oh, totally. Like I, I even like some of the, the silly aspects in the beginning, like when the, the doctor rolls up in a Ferrari and that kind of stuff. <laughs> like it's just, it's so much more so uh, um, just, I don't know. Uh, it's like, it's, it's just got, it's got a little bit more personality to it, I guess. And like you said, it's on purpose. Um, but I just take to that more, especially given that we do this show. So all those weird elements, especially when the, the AI starts to, like, they come up with different ways for the AI to physically attack. That was very interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, this one just had a little bit more fun with its premise, even though it's essentially the same thing, except it's just on a smaller scale, I suppose. It implies that it's going to be a bigger scale, but this one is mostly uh, uh, dealing with um, with uh, Julie. So it, it has a cosmic bigger scale in like the same way that closer to like what like 2001 and phase four were doing where yeah. like, you know, like there's a there's a future evolution. It's not like I'm immediately hijacking every nuke and I'm going to use it <laughs> right. on you in like five minutes, you know, like it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's more of a you know, sort of like a, a chemical relationship between these two objects. But once again, they do start very similarly where it is like they literally both movies open with like the doctor, the pompous doctor being like, you know, we've completed the artificial intelligence program. And I think he's like today, a new dimension has been added to the concept of computer today. It will begin to think and it will think with a power and precision that will make the human brain obsolete. And once again, I went, Oh, wonderful. They've done it again. <laughs> Nailed it. This time they've done it in the, uh, you know, these uh, sort of Los Angeles uh, landscapes. Wait, was the last one Los Angeles set too? I actually didn't. I think, I can't I, remember. Th- th- thinking about all of those landscape shots, I was like, actually, it might have been too. <laughs> so maybe they, this is Los Angeles doctors. Don't trust them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, scientists. Um, but the other, I mean, the other but, thing uh, that this, they have in common is that they're both chamber pieces too. I mean, even though they're uh, ostensibly yeah, about true. world domination, they basically take place in one room, the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's even a point yep. where like, cause it, it kind of starts off with, um, with Alex or, or Fritz Weaver being, the the center in a way like yeah you think he's the lead when dr harris is like you know he's chatting with all of the people about and all of his like employees about it and he's stoked he's he's all stoked that you know they fed the computer information on leukemia that they could gather and it basically came back with like a curing antigen for leukemia in like four days and so like the immediate cut from him being stoked about that is to him as jamie was saying uh like (laughs) driving his fucking you know sports car home all the way home to his fancy high-tech house where he has like a computer system uh, named wait what would 
he's like a robot butler running his security cameras and making him martinis. Uh, yeah. And once again, the martinis are there too. This is just of an era. Um, <laughs> yeah. and there's a guys, a, I a paired these safe. for a reason. I really paired. these. Yes. For a reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like he planned this. Um, I also love the giant safe that he has to store all of his oversized floppy disks, though. Just a wonderful uh, <laughs> sight to behold. But but yeah, like you're you're right that it, it it totally sits in with like you know after that it's all about the domestic relationship. Yeah, and once we're introduced to the Julie Christie character, it, you know it becomes her movie, right? So yeah, like I at one point just because I, and I like I mean everything with with Julie Christie was definitely um, interesting and, and very good and, and a lot more interesting than than Fritz's character. And I'm glad that we didn't just get like Eric 2.0 in in this in this movie. I do like where they focused but there was a certain point too where my brain was kind of like they they did almost no cutbacks to uh the husband yeah, it's like, and so what's he I'm, doing that, right now yeah, so my and brain was kind he? of like i get where they're focused on and i like that focus but it it made him feel so much more like negligent as a as a husband <laughs> because they never come back to him and and show him like working on things at least very often it's very few and far between yeah the i mean the, the, they tried to set up the end, that, it's like oh yeah he's yeah. he's involved you know what i mean well because i was say they they tried to set up that he's like kind of like a bad husband right is the yeah. idea and that's why he yeah. like never checks in on her because like he's dedicated to his work to the point of you know like bringing it home with him literally in his concrete and steel basement lab that he has but he's also in the process of this divorce with his psychologist wife uh susan and it is seemingly like they are po they are at like a sort of diametric odds almost philosophically where it's like she works directly with people and with human connection one of the early scenes with her is seeing her comforting a child during uh, a, a session where she you know full-on like hugs uh the child <laughs> Whereas she thinks that he's gone completely cold and dehumanizing uh, in in his obsession with his new computers. And honestly, one of the only times that he even like tries to touch her, he tries to touch her with the 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 little robot hand, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and she I, immediately just fucking like leaves loud. She's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And so and, and and all of the imagery does kind of back her up, like all of the corporate suits rolling up to his uh, his like his base that he has, another underground base as well, uh, versus all of like the greenery of of L.A. being swallowed by the concrete and glass of his of his building that goes ten stories um, on underground and everything like that. Yeah. And all of this is sort of meant to be like because there's a little bit of again like the computer has watchful eyes via cameras and listens to the conversations in the room is happening too. all of this is like a little bit of a precursor to like, you know, the modern tech bros run amok plus because this one has more of like a mm -hmm. like there's a, a corporate reason for him to be developing the project and also the surveillance state aspect um, of, of, of it as well. And obviously the HAL 9000 aspect too. When, Cause this computer talks right away and actually has kind of like deep conversations about his existence. And it has uh, a voice. With the Dr. Harris. Like it's not a robot. It's kind of has like, it has the, the robotic filter on it just to make it like, this is AI, but it seems like there's an actual actor. I think he's even British. So it, there's, there's kind it's, of this it's like, Robert Vaughn. It's the great Robert right. Vaughn who does the voice. And he has like, <laughs> he was uncredited in the movie, but you know, if you've, I, if, he's he's featured in so of uh, basketball over. fame yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. among many other things yes <laughs> yeah Am um, among bullet and magnificent seven you know the classics i also did uh like that you're definitely right that that uh, like alex harris the doctor has this kind of um uh, very cold demeanor to him and and is just hyper focused on his work but i do like that they have some subtle things that 
eventually is revealed to be the connection to their past with their their daughter that passed away, where they're having that fight in his lab, and she's saying that like his work is dehumanizing and he reacts with children dying is dehumanizing. And you think at first that that's just kind of like an excuse for him to just keep going because that's where his focus is. But I do like that there's some implication that he's doing this for, you know, his his uh, daughter that's passed. Um, they don't mm-hmm. focus too much with his character about it, but I still did believe that that's probably the the initial reason that he started doing this, but it's just probably, you know, spiraled into something else. Well, yeah. And, and, and he, and her, I guess, argument is that he's kind of, he's, he's drifted away into, you know, is that really the mission anymore? Because Mm -hmm. she, if you think about it, has done the same thing where she's like working with children and comforting children and helping them live their day to day life. Whereas he is, you know, he now sits in a room with his computer, uh, you know, where he's getting into, uh, our arguments with it where he's kind of like, you know, uh, I think the computer has thought, you know, his thinking power has developed to the point of not seeing the reason for all of this intensive, mindless labor, like solving cancer uh, that he is given. Um, and he instead is like, hey, boss, can I have like private access to like some terminals? I just kind of want to study man. <laughs> I yeah. just want to like, I just want to, <laughs> you know, I just want to kind of see what's going on there. What's what's up with your business? Um, yeah. And uh, Proteus, even because because Harris, like, he completely denies the computer. He's like, no, you can't, you, you can't, uh, do that. But he left his terminal open on his home computer system where he has left his wife and he is divorcing his wife. So he doesn't plan on returning back to that home until she's gone. So Even, he's left I've, her completely alone. I almost forgot about that. And where he's with an open terminal. Yeah. What are you doing, man? That's not safe. He also <laughs> justifies that whole separation by saying it's like, well, look at the scientific facts. Like 85% of people that separate are happier and all of that stuff while he's having an argument <laughs> with his wife. I'm like, I don't know if that's the way to go about this, man. <laughs> it's not, Ooh, it's not I, a, which might me another connection. Uh, a woman framed through uh, an obscuring piece of glass. That shot of him holding up the uh, broken glasses uh, oh, that yeah. obscure Julie Christie briefly. Yeah, so, totally. look, at, look at all these connections. It's all there, baby. It's all there. Yeah. And they even mentioned stuff too. Like, I think this is, it must be just standard AI stuff in a sense, but they mentioned like, you know, it's, it's an impenetrable force. Like it's, they say something like it's more secure than Fort Knox or something like that. And they say very similar <laughs> things in Colossus. It, and I guess it, it's an early thing to imply that they can't do anything about this once it snowballs. Um, and they, it just seems to be a common theme in these AI films. At the mm. risk of getting well, too far ahead of ourselves, I would say that the conclusion of this movie like threatens that the idea that this Mm. is like an all powerful figure, because in fact they just kind of like pull the plug near the end. And that's (laughs) that's that obviously like the, you know, the the computer baby is born so we can, we can contend with that in demon seed too. And the three of us make it, but like (laughs) it's, it's, it's seemingly not as powerful as Colossus. This, this AI that he has created the supercomputer. Yeah. Yeah. No, it just has more uh, illusions of grandeur. And uh, (laughs) it wants to get it on. Well, well, yeah, well, because you know, speaking of that, the movie <laughs> changes gears like fucking crazy yeah, it when really it changes. makes its way into the home. It takes control over the home. And we just saw that his home was very high tech and it's run by his AI, Alfred. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden, Proteus, they say, so it's kind of this like they they rely on the system itself at this point. Um, yes, so that's the danger. It, it, 
smart homes uh one of the first ones right here yeah um <laughs> and the uh computer begins to spy on and become entranced uh by julie christie at home he's spying on her in various vulnerable states of of sleeping of showering and she immediately feels that something is off in the house and begins to walk around it like one of the heroines of a 60s polanski thriller um mm-hmm. i i like that shot of her um uh, flashlight reflected on one of the TV screens that comes up at, at one point. And this starts to make similar developments where her bodily autonomy um, is uh, threatened and taken from her and not to give birth to a Satan baby like in Rosemary's baby, uh, but a computer robo baby <laughs> whose consciousness is formed in these like psychedelic laser prisms of of some kind. Yeah. And like they have shows for five minutes. Yeah, and and the reasoning behind it is like this creepy conversation where he's like, you know, you have not told me like what you want from me, and you know, Proteus is like, I want a child. I I can't feel the sun on my face. My child will have that privilege. Mm-hmm. My child and yours, you will bear it, and this child will be the world's hope and the process of evolution, and it will be uh, immortal like any man. And I was like, I don't I don't know that he knows how man works uh, quite uh, exactly yet. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I, I can see that he is, uh, you know, he, he wants a fleshy body for, for his existence is what he's looking for. And, and Julie Christie is, uh, as he views it, the, uh, the incubation chamber in order to make that possible. But what's interesting is before it gets into more of like the philosophical reasons as to why the computer like wants a baby, Mm-hmm. This movie concerns itself a lot with just like the simple logistical issues is like the main thrust of the movie, which is like, you know, the uh, setting off the alarm and like messing up her coffee, which she thinks is like her home computer butler, Alfred, just like malfunctioning. But it turns into Proteus like full out locking her in the house, um, yeah. blocking her phone calls and like quite literally trapping her in you know in in more sort of like classic thriller ways of like she can't make her way out the door and i'm telling you that i'm the one doing this and you need to behave rationally in the face of this yeah did, yeah. did the op- that opening introduction of the kind of like home butler and all the gadgetry of the home give you guys any peewee's big adventure vibes i feel like it was very absolutely very, very <laughs> yeah. similar <laughs> yeah just all the like automatic opening drawers and talking to you and everything like that yeah I was also thinking about the dad who the the, uh, the inventor dad in Gremlins. I was like, he would love this house. Oh yeah, <laughs> look at yeah. all this shit that it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess this is where it starts to get like really fucking wild. Where um, you know the the AI uh, and it, like we mentioned before, it has these like robotic arms that he's created so that they can actually do things for them physically in the physical world. And so now it's using it to restrain her and like and force her onto the the table that. It seems to happen a lot in this film because, you know, she's basically forced to uh, go through these tests and then go through the pregnancy and and all of that. So it becomes this, like, I don't know, really gross AI mad scientist thing for a lot of the film. Uh, Yeah, what if HAL 9000 was a rapist? Yeah, essentially, that's what it is. Truly. Which is why, like, you imagine him, like, pushing that piece of paper towards, like, the MGM exec and the guy just being, like, he's like, there's no money symbol here. What are we doing? What are we doing here? (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? This is not a pleasant movie. No, it's really, really um, unpleasant, honestly, which is one of the things that I kind of found intriguing about it is because it turns in, like, these sort of, like, you know, it turns into a pretty 
kind of creepy and claustrophobic little movie where the computer is like threatening to viciously like kill people uh, if she doesn't cooperate. Uh, yep. I like the bit where she's like trying to shut off the power and he electrocutes uh, her keys so that t- so then it can do this like awesome like creepy split diopter POV shot of him taking the like robots little hands and rolling them up to her unconscious body on the ground mm-hmm. and then moving her over to the lab where he like ties her to the stretcher with like electrical wires and you know he starts basically testing her body and planning how he might artificially inseminate her and it's done in these just horrible distorted lens close-up shots of her face and her legs and like the 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 screens and cameras that are watching her as like the little robot hands start like pulling tubes and needles out and stuff like that. It like it's it really s- horrible imagery. Yeah, it's really creepy too just that cuz you know there's there's no emotion with this robot so it's just kind of like you know you just picture yourself in that position and you're just like there's nothing like there's no way of convincing this entity that you should you know be out of this or or anything there's no humanity there so just watching the robot hands do all of these things like just with pure calculation is is I think mm-hmm. I don't know somehow even creepier to me uh, at least well and Julie Christie I think is the one selling all of it totally. because like She's literally great. this is like weird little production designed robots just like attacking her and like mm-hmm. she needs to actually sell the terror of it like in that like that one shot especially of um, the the robot hand grabbing the tube and it's mm-hmm. done in this split screen where basically we get like the profile of her face on the slab and then also the overhead of her face on the TV screen that the robot yeah. is So no matter where you look on the left side of the screen, the right side of the screen, all you see is Julie Christie's like terrified face, which is, you know, like so much of the tension of this movie and the terror of it is just, you know, that experience that um, she is going through and also followed up with like the weirdness of the robot, like thinking obviously that this is all very normal yeah. where like the next morning he'll just like prepare her this amazing breakfast. And similarly to the Colossus thing, it's just like, <laughs> you know, you have a strict timeline. You have to eat these amazing, like this nutrients, you know, it's fueling time for your body. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and uh, at one point she straight up like screams, like, like, why do you care? Why are you so interested in the physiology of my body? The mind and the body are the same thing, is what she posits that the robot doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And kinda, also her frustration. Kinda, Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it, I mean, it, it really resembles, though, a lot of either dramas about grooming young women or serial mm-hmm. killer mm-hmm. movies, you know, where you realize yes. that the serial killer like doesn't really fully understand female sexuality or the human body and there's like all these disconnects and then there's also this attempt to kind of like falsely portray you know harmony in the relationship during the non-violent hours you know like there is this very specific like almost like silence of the lambs quality to a lot of that stuff once uh, proteus has really started his like i guess romantic impregnation pursuit yeah, like mm-hmm. at one point he's saying like she's obviously freaking out and and um, Proteus is just like just behave rationally. You know, it's like she is <laughs> behaving rationally right now. This is a horrifying <laughs> situation. Um and so it's just that coldness yeah, throwing that her breakfast at the robot lens and not cleaning the lens off for him. <laughs> yeah, that is love- like a very normal reaction even though he's just like so stupid. Yeah, and I love that he's he's like clean the lens like fucking like yeah. there's something about him just being so upset that you know the eggs are all over him it's almost like a personal <laughs> attack or something like that and just for him to react that way the ai 
at least is is very yeah funny. well they, they do almost write it like a like a domestic abuse yeah, uh, scenario totally. as well a little bit too right and they yeah. do that thing like um i really also enjoy all the the different ways the ai starts to try to manipulate people like when he um, takes her image and then puts her on the video call when Walter, the assistant, comes to try to see what's up. Yeah, and and canceling all of her plans with everyone so that no one like wonders where she is. Yeah, but but also everyone can tell that like the way that she's her cadence like isn't quite yeah. right. Like she's not it saying sounds, things normally. Like everyone who talks to the little holographic her is like, "Are you okay?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because he just he can't quite capture that pure human spirit or voice or anything like that and the way that people would react or even just like say i'm okay seems strange yeah yeah well and yeah the 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 way that she you know like uh that the computer starts trying to you know like take over um all of her personal relationships in her life and absolutely fails at doing so i think is like one of the more interesting um uh, aspects because like yeah. the computer obviously doesn't note that that's what's happening but he does think that he over the course of the film he is wooing her even though it is like a case of you know like she is rebelling against him and the computer is like locking her in the kitchen and like turning the stove on so it turns the entire kitchen into like this sauna because he's like look either you can you can like hang out with me and we can have a good time <laughs> or you know i'm gonna cut off your water and make it so that you can't go on the floor without burning your feet until you basically agree to have um this uh this th this child and eventually he just does straight up prey on their trauma of her own dead child where yes. he's just like you know she might have been saved by a leukemia drug that i just developed in four days motherfucker like right. how god created the universe like what are you like come on take me on and um, further manipulating her as well with the the child that she has now kind of uh, formed a relationship with and is helping uh, through whatever she was going through. Um, because at one point, the AI shows the child being, like, electrocuted um, and then shows that same child <laughs> leaving right. uh, and That's safely. a great split diopter so, shot, too, of her looking at that screen of that kid while that kid just is about to yeah. <laughs> get electrocuted. And so there's this, this, like, idea that you don't really know what just happened, and she doesn't either as a character. It's just, like, he either let her go safely and so that they can continue this thing and that's kind of the deal um, or the threat actually happened and the little girl was electrocuted. So it's just this constant manipulation that he's doing through the technology that the AI has access to. And I keep calling it he because it has a name and the voice, which I find kind of funny too. Well, and, and, and it, it acts, it, again, it does act as a like male abuser yeah. and a male killer in a lot of ways. Like it's functionally yeah. used as like an abusive partner or a serial killer functionally, mm -hmm. you know, like that. Yep. Those are like the two modes it kind of operates between <laughs> when, when talking with, uh, Julie Christie so much so that like there's some pretty harrowing stuff like that moment when Julie Christie considers like stabbing herself in the womb oh, to be yeah. like if I like like if I ruin my body then I don't serve the scientific purpose that this Proteus computer thinks that I I, I serve uh, any longer mm -hmm. um, which is a really dark moment and the, the thing that threw me off is that they'll have a moment like that which feels like it almost comes from like like a like a, a really fantastic 70s movie that we'd all know the name of. And then you throw in like some of the sillier action elements that they try to do to kind of keep this going. Like when the young scientist employee from work, Walter shows up at the house. Cause he comes back, yeah. he comes back because the first time he showed up, uh, he was like, something was kind of wrong. I'm going to go double check on her. And the, uh, 
uh, she was also contacted because, you know, she made a call saying that the, the tech was malfunctioning uh, before she found out what was wrong with it. And he gets into a physical altercation with Proteus where straight up there's a point in it where he's like reflecting laser shots with a hand mirror, like out of a <laughs> yeah. Bond movie at the, at the computer. And it's pretty lengthy the and way it, like the, the whole thing is drawn out. Like it, he's he's diving over the bed. He's hiding behind the thing, grabbing the mirror, looking yeah. under the bed. It's like, it's, it's Proteus like, has taken the form of like a giant, a giant like polyhedron arm. Yeah, that's like a like a crane yeah, that moves it, around the house. I don't on, know. Like, <laughs> and 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 as soon as I've I've lost it when like it reveals that whole thing because Walter's in there with um with uh, Susan and and they're you know they're talking like are you okay and Susan's kind of giving this performance of you know she's been told to. Um, uh, play ball with with the AI, or Walter's going to be killed in front of her. So she's she's kind of trying to lie to him, but there's this you know obvious discomfort. Uh, and then as soon as the AI rolls in with the big gun, I was just like, what is about to happen? <laughs> and the laser fighting was just, it, it blew my mind. I really didn't expect guys, it yeah. to get that guys, kind of ridiculous. Guys, this is the best part of the movie. Come on. This is incredible. <laughs> it is. Yeah, this no, I think it's good. I was on board. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> as soon as all this stuff happened and I realized that we're just going to be kind of locked in with Susan and the AI and it's just going to be a battle of, you know, man versus AI, um, I, I was way more on board than I was with Colossus, even though, I, like, like like we said, a lot of great things in Colossus. This one just has more of that um, silly kind of uh, straight up sleazy thing that we're, that we usually actively engage with on the show. And so when it started to do all that, I got, I got stoked. <laughs> Yeah, I oh, feel yeah, like, like that part where he gets decapitated by the polyhedron. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And it's Garrett Graham. So it kind of feels like if Brian De Palma made a sci-fi movie, you know, like it's a very <laughs> yeah. the 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 like the sense of humor that it has, but also the collision of horror. And also I've I've just it's it's not exactly the most elegant thing to look at in 2023, but that polyhedron mm-hmm. copper shape that kind of, you know, traps and then crushes Garrett Graham. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever really yep. seen anything quite like that in a movie. I I, I, yeah. like, I don't know. And I actually don't know how they designed and shot that. And at times the way that it's moving, I mean, it's 1977. So I, I, I there's something kind of in the practical execution of this movie. I, I the laser um, mirror effect is obviously quite lame and funny, but there are also some co- sort of like terrifying physical aspects to Proteus mm-hmm. that I think are like kind of impressive while also you know, have their tongue firmly planted in their cheek as they're making the movie. And that's sort of what's fun yeah. about it. I mean, all the way up to the the final baby too, which has a kind of like practical aspect that is also absurd. But, you know, Josh, you were talking. I kind of love that element though. Yeah, that, like that, the, like <laughs> the, the, the like fleshy interior of all of us. Like it indicates somehow that Colossus and Proteus and all of these. Well, yeah. Well, super that, that had me thinking about Cronenberg's The Fly. I was yeah, waiting for the yeah. part where one of them whipped out a shotgun and blew the baby <laughs> away or something. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, yeah, because like the, the whole finale of this, I found to be some of the most interesting stuff because it, it kind of re- obviously it, one of the main things is it really reveals the sort of like childhood sort of like parental uh, a- anxiety of the two characters, and that obviously the computer is preying on that and offering them to you know give birth to a computer baby that is their new baby and and also that this computer was also born out of this relationship that has gone wrong in the same way too so you know like there there's a lot of more interesting stuff that kind of crops up right at the very very end of the film but there's also one sequence 
that does, and it's very complicated, honestly, and people might be a little troubled by it, but the, the, the way that Julie Christie eventually does relent to Proteus and does agree to have the baby and on some level, like under very forceful conditions, 100%. But she does eventually say to Proteus, okay, like I'll, I'll have the baby. And it's done in this really crazy sequence where it reminded me of the psychedelic stuff in, in phase four where Proteus does actually give her like this sort of like light show by basically using the (laughs) electrodes in her amygdala, as he says. Also, after you Um, get a shot of the extended robot penis, that's kind of yes. wild. <laughs> well, yeah, which is f- freaky. <laughs> and and also, but the, the robot is, I guess, trying to be comforting because he's like, look, I know that like I don't have a pleasing man's body and <laughs> this is not going to be similar to having sex with a man. It's going to be like, a, you know, like it's, it's not going to be the same experience. So in order to make it more palatable for her he has her like travel the galaxy which is like meant to be a cross between like the 2001 stargate stuff plus like i don't know like the soylent green like suicide booth part i guess where where it's like (laughs) look at look at these sort of like a magisterial existence beyond humanity and and what it might look like and we should give ourselves up to the 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 stars and it's not quite as inventive as phase four where you're like watching ants turn people into like slaves building pyramids uh, (laughs) because that's just an image I'll never forget but it is like an interesting idea of a computer trying to make love to a woman and like what it would look like if it was like genuinely trying to do that and like make it pleasurable for her in, in in some kind of way and I thought that sequence was just never seen anything like that before yeah. Have we also mentioned that there that he synthesized or Pro- Proteus synthesizes sperm? I don't know. Like, I don't know if I've ever <laughs> yeah. seen that as a concept that, specifically. Yeah. Me neither. That is so strange. What a weird movie. <laughs> yeah, th- this is an absolutely wild one. Uh, well, yeah, well, because because and then and then it's straight up like, well, now the baby is going to grow in a 28 day moon cycle, which we get to see in images <laughs> of like literally inside her womb and in where she's inside like an incubator tent and it's dissolving into images of the moon to show like the passing of the month because the husband is not coming for an entire month. You know, I don't know. It's, it's such a like the style choices in this section of the film were definitely the ones where I was taken the most with. And yeah, like fading, then it results in the it shows like the moon and fading into the baby inside. Right. And saying like, yes, and then I think the AI is like our child, your child or something like that. Yeah. It's fucking <laughs> crazy. They're going to create the next uh, step in evolution, the next being. He's going to go to the moon. He's going to go to the stars, you know, yes. did, all of it. Did um, you guys notice that I'm, I'm reminded of this as, as I think about that sequence that like this movie opens with this horizon line shot of the sun in the desert that is so similar to white of the eye too. And then he calls back to that shot mm-hmm. when he's kind of having yes. her tra- traverse all of the dimensions of the world. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. just a, 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 an image that camel can't get away from, but the fact that he is going back to it in two of his four features is fascinating to me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we talked about a lot on white of the eye, but so much of what that character is going through in that movie is trying to achieve a cosmic transcendence and mm-hmm. doing it through like grounded fleshy impulse is the idea. And both of them are doing it also via serial killer uh, shenanigans as yeah. well. So I don't yeah. know. It's like, a, there's a weird like violence as art as euphoria 
kind of connection uh, yeah. happening through so much of, of what he does that definitely made this um, quite quite interesting. Um, even uh, and it does re- even closes oh, it on the on the, the the child's eye like into the the, the light that's kind of that opens up the movie itself and everything like that. So he opens and closes it the same way. Yeah, yeah, because that final set piece where Alex finally returns home, and I don't remember exactly why he said that he returned home. It's just like he's it's just finally so like, you know, funny, it's actually. been a month. Maybe I should check on my wife. Or, or I think actually she was supposed to be gone, right? That's the idea. She had like a month to pack her shit and like go yeah. find a new place or something. It's just the way that they shoot it because they finally go back to him, and it, it almost feels like he's, you know, he's just been working for this long, and then he has that moment where he goes, Oh fuck! The terminal at my house, and then just like, <laughs> like, zooms to home to try to save her. And it just, I, I just, I think it's just the way that they put the scenes together that made it kind of humorous for me. But um, yeah, it's it's yeah. still a fun. Finale. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because um, they 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 see at the lab that he accessed uh, telescope imagery that Proteus accessed telescope imagery to make right. love to his wife, and then they go, well, why was he accessing telescope imagery, and where was he accessing it from? And then he's like, oh, okay. Left that so then he open. goes home and he sees Susan there, and one of the more interesting elements of this is that Susan sits him down and she's like, look, I fucked the robot and I had a baby. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm. <laughs> It's it's just the facts. I'm just oh, telling you man. what happened while you've been gone for a month. Um, <laughs> you should not have left. It, and it turns into this whole sequence where, like, Proteus, in order to like show his commitment to the monstrous robot baby, he like self destructs in front of them. Once again, talking about like self annihilation as like the path to this stuff as well. And he's basically like showing them. You know, like, I am no longer a threat. Just don't kill this baby. Like, leave it in the incubator. Don't abort this baby. And it does turn into a thing where, like, Julie Christie looks at it and we don't see it exactly. But when they look into the little, like, metal cradle, they're like, what an abomination. Like, we need to fucking. Doesn't the doctor say it's a miracle? Yeah. Yeah. He's on a different page. <laughs> They're on a different wavelength on that one too. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, because yeah. And it doesn't also doesn't look like their child yet. So I don't know exactly why he's saying it's a miracle. It has like a metal skin yeah. texture to it when it like first crawls out. It's, it's, it's kind of horrifying baby. to look at. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of wild. It reminded me more of Larry Cohen's it's alive with the little baby coming out of the, uh, and mm-hmm. killing people. I was like, this, this is going to go on. This is going to demon seed two as it goes on a killing streak. Yeah. yeah <laughs> can can I ask you, let me ask you, do you, are you guys familiar with Dean Koontz's work? Like this is a blind spot for me as a reader. And no, like I, I, my understanding, I recognize the name for, for some reason and I wasn't sure why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, he was kind of the, uh, you know, this is going to be disrespectful, but like the off-brand Stephen King in the '90s okay. and '80s. Okay, and he has written honestly like hundreds of books. <laughs> like he has written so many novels, and he has a series of like um, uh, graphic novels and a series of recurring characters. Not quite as expansive a universe as Stephen King, but he is a little bit like his work is a little slimier, so to speak. Which is not—I don't mean like morally. I mean like literally, like a like a metal baby with, you know, flesh skin underneath is the kind of thing you would find in a Dean Kuhn story. Um, mm-hmm. And also hmm. this idea of like impending doom is a big theme for in a lot of his books, as I understand it. But the whole ending of the film, which is like, as you say, this like admission of being raped by a rope, like a supercomputer and then having yep. to come to grips in this broken relationship with having to care for the product of this violent act is some of the yeah. most perverse shit you're ever going to see. It, it, it's like, it is an incredibly weird 
conclusion to the movie, much like kind of like Colossus, where you're like, wait, what? This is the end of the movie? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, the, the child is a clone of their child that died. The daughter. Yeah, once it cracks the metal skin open, exactly. it's a perfect clone of their dead kid, <laughs> which wild. you which you can assume that like on one level is it's like it was Proteus doing this as like a you know to fix their <laughs> yeah. relationship type deal or Colossus was Proteus doing this coming together to because it would ensure its safety yeah. that they couldn't kill their kid, you know? Like a, you know, it's it's a very bleak thing and the only yeah, the only thing I was waiting for was it for it to straight up go the fly mode because it even comes out of the pod and it's like foggy and everything. And I was yeah, going, falls dude, on the are they just going to like crying? It's wet. It's disgusting looking. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, are they going to kill this this baby or is this baby going to like attack them or something? I was kind of waiting for like an additional sequence to it. But it's like, no, that's the end. Like, it's just are they, they are they or it. are they not going to kill this clone of their child is the sort of note that it ends on, which is, yeah, once again, very, very 70s bleakness on that one. Yeah. Put yourself yeah. in their shoes. What would you do? Would you kill this uh, supercomputer hybrid baby? Give it a couple of years. We'll see what it happens. depends on how good the sensation of the light show was. Yeah. 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 That's it. Will it entertain? That's all I yeah. care about. And cause you know, like if, like if maybe if the baby makes that future possible, you know, that's what, that's what he was trying to say. But, Bet- but who knows, you know, well, I, I just, I don't better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. You know, that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let yeah. Proteus yeah. cook. <laughs> yeah let's see what he's got let's see what he's got but yeah and, and that's the Proteus. end of demon seed which is fucking crazy that's just the end of demon seed so yeah if, if we are pivoting towards uh reductive rating around on this one this one honestly got the high three for me yeah um yeah. i uh definitely thought it was one of the weirder entries in the sort of like burgeoning science fiction horror boom at, at the end of the 70s there and um again like not entirely coherent of a mix of the HAL 9000, you know, computer overthrowing its masters and the sort of like the Saul Bass phase four, the sort of surreal forced evolution by a higher being and the, uh, of course, the parental and bodily autonomy anxiety stuff of, of Rosemary's baby. But it was definitely an interesting one and definitely, again, feels like material that the director is getting something out of or expressing something through. And, you know, as much as it is trying to do some, you know, pretty disturbing sort of like taboo subject matter, um, I don't think it's, you know, using them completely thoughtlessly. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's, uh, even if I don't know entirely how deeply it's reckoning with uh, all of the ideas that it's, that it's bringing up, um, especially too, when it decides to get a little bit like logistically sillier, um, uh, considering how traumatizing the premise is. Uh, yeah. But uh, but I do think that Julie Christie kind of grounds the whole thing too, that she sells so much of the emotion uh, and the tension of her being physically threatened by her own home, uh, which again is a kind of a silly image, uh, just that her, her home betraying her and all of the household devices betraying her, like the fucking microwave and the sink. And, <laughs> right, um, the kitchen floor. <laughs> But yeah, but 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 yeah, Camel is doing very solid for hire directing work on it. It looks really nice. It has some really creepy atmosphere. The uh, cinematography by uh, Bill Butler, really good use of the claustrophobic environment. Deal, lots of split diopters and screens, and mm-hmm. sort of like more psychedelic images. Like not even just like the light show stuff where he's trying to you know like uh, have sex with Julie Christie. 
I'm also thinking of the, you know, the crossfading between the images from inside the womb, uh, combining with the moon and stuff like that. Like there's just, there's yeah. some crazy stuff in here. And that's before you get into the monster baby finale, <laughs> which the only thing that could have made it better is if it was just a tiny bit bigger and it went full, it's alive or the fly. Yeah, and just like shotgun to that baby. <laughs> just uh, do a little action scene with the baby or something, you know, do something crazy. Yeah. Uh, ca- cathartic. Cause imagine her having to perversely, but cathartically like explode her child or something like that to get exactly rid of like this. Her daughter. So it just, yeah. Most, oh my God, that would be wild. Contrasting with her, like trying to protect the little child earlier and like hugging the child earlier. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if she, if Julie Christie got to kill the rape baby, <laughs> I think this would be an easy for <laughs> nicely put. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like a horrible thing to say, but it's, it's the name of the show. Come exactly. on people. Um, you're, at, you're on the sleazoids podcast here, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, other than that, I thought this was quite interesting and it just made me want to further explore like Donald Camel's like very, you know, again, short career. Cause I mm-hmm. still haven't seen performance yet. I've only seen yeah, clips and I have not seen wild side, which was the movie that he made, uh, right before killing himself. Wild um, side is a head is, trip, man. It's, uh, I saw it when it was, released i think it, i, I want to say that it actually premiered on hbo because it couldn't find a distributor but it is well and, and it was severely cut up and they've since released the like version that's like more what he wanted to release i guess Perform- that, that's apparently available so performance i was wondering if the reason that julie christie is in this movie which is extremely hard to understand um is because <laughs> of nicholas rogue and the collaboration between camel and rogue on performance and the idea of like maybe he recommended it to her after don't look now like i otherwise mm, why that's possible. Yeah. why she took what is really, really like a pure b picture i mean this is like yeah, not totally a prestigious movie at all and it, in the midst of basically starring in four or five best picture nominees in a row um is really yes. confusing <laughs> yeah and 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 even her sillier stuff it was like warren Beatty stuff that was like incredibly popular yes right exactly yeah yeah i would uh i'd also give it a a strong three honestly by the end i almost fought it and i think just if if it had some of the things that we've already discussed in it uh i i think it could get there um it is a it is strangely enough for how horrifying the situation is it's it is kind of silly at times and and a lot of fun to watch like you know we're talking about the you know forced insemination of a woman by an ai and then also we're talking about him having a laser fight with the assistant um and just like there's there's a lot of decapitating him yeah yeah and i have to say that that decapitation and then the way they do it too they kind of hide the the actual gore gag a little bit by fading away so you see him get decapitated and like you kind of see like blood and maybe even the head kind of roll over the pyramid thing that's squeezing him um but then it fades away into something else and it just kind of it it masks it a bit but i really liked the effect i thought it was really cool um i also liked the uh and i think this was what i was trying to say with um when the the AI was manipulating Walter and and using her image and kind of like the the AI version of her voice to convince him that she's okay, um, I just found it interesting because that's becoming really popular today. Like I'm sure you guys have heard a couple of those AI voices online with like the presidents and stuff like that. Um, and I just found it to be interesting that they they sound similar in that sense. Like there's that there's that tone and that cadence that has that human aspect, but there's just always something in there that is, is, has that uncanny Valley to it. Um, and it was just cool to see that in 77. And now we're once again, kind of dealing with it today. 
and I also love the look of the the floating pyramid terminal terminal or whatever it is. Um, the way that it's like <laughs> it 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 is honestly one of the cooler parts of their uh, the technical aspects of the film, just because the way that it presents itself first. There's this giant explosion in the in the the glass case that it's in at first, and then it just starts to to float towards them, and and it just has this strangely surreal, menacing quality to it. There's even a part where it explodes the. Like the the I think it's the whole kitchen floor and rises up and everything. It just has this kind of like cool epic quality to it. Um, but yeah, I think I think this is um, it's a little bit all over the place tonally and with its ideas. But I I really dug some of the silliness and the horror aspects are actually quite effective. Um, the, the those those every scene with the AI doing um, any type of like operation or tests while she's restrained on the table and you see all these different screens and, and all the robot hands just moving around her body. It's just, it's really good and it's, it's pretty horrifying. So um, yeah, strong three. I would recommend it. Yeah, for you, Sean. It's a four for me, guys. There's no nice. other movie oh, that is well, like there you this. Go. I feel like it There's could get no, there, no. honestly. I, I, I would say if you revisited in a few years, which is what I just did to prepare for this, I was yeah. just incredibly impressed by its willingness to go there. Um, it's also like <laughs> yeah. it is um, a lot of really good crafts people, you know, from MG for MGM making a big budget version of like a very strange mm -hmm. science fiction movie. You know, you, Josh, you mentioned Bill Butler a few times like Bill Butler shot the conversation. He shot one from mm. the Cuckoo's yep. Nest. You know what I mean? Like he. Yep. That he is a high class cinematographer working on with this kind of material. The the composer is Jerry Fielding, yeah, who like exactly. what did Outlaw Josie Wales, Escape from Alcatraz, oh, The wow. Wild Bunch, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Fantastic. Like, yeah, yeah. This is not, and, and it's it it is during a time when that sort of thing could happen. Um, and in keeping with my obsession with like what the studio was doing at that time. MGM, unlike all of the other studios, which were releasing many, many movies in any given year, in 76 and 77, they started to slow down a lot. They only released three movies in, a cal in one calendar year period from November 76 to November 77. They released Network in November of 76, Demon Seed in April, April of 77, and The Goodbye Girl in November of 77. That is weird. Like, what is, <laughs> what is the development crew on those three films? The fact that they have, like, you know, a Best Picture nominee followed up directly by demon seed is is <laughs> remarkable like it's just it was a completely different time in hollywood um camel yeah. obviously is is a singular figure you know clearly a very disturbed guy and the themes mm -hmm. that he's interested in um even by even in the context of a sleazoids episode he's really pretty out there um because you can, <laughs> he is you can sense that there's like some psychological um some analysis that he's doing on himself as he tells some of these stories and once you see um wild side you'll you'll see yeah what I mean. maybe don't look up the age of his wife while he made this film exactly <laughs> yeah. if you don't yeah. want to have not, your day ruined yeah, yeah. Not, not the maybe maybe not a great guy i think it's fair to say no but um yeah <laughs> but an interesting artist and uh th this is like a, an amazing experiment in big hollywood meeting a a, a few fractured minds so I, I think it's a really cool movie yeah well i think that that is uh going to wrap it up uh for this week's 
episode. That was Colossus, the Forbin Project from 1970 and Demon Seed from 1977. Thanks so much, Sean, for joining us and for bringing these out there yeah, uh, you. films with you. Uh, what's uh, This is normally where we have people plug stuff. So what's going on in uh, Ringer World? Anything interesting coming out? Yeah, I mean, just check me out on the big picture. Um, I'm on the Rewatchables podcast from time to time. I promise we will not be doing Demon Seed anytime soon. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I dig you this show. Be. So I, I, I'd like to hear Bill's opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't. Well, he loves Julie Christie, so you never know. But um, yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, in the meantime, yeah. thanks so much. Like, I think this is a great show, and uh, I love discovering movies, listening to you guys talk about them. So this was fun for me to hopefully push people in the direction of a couple of interesting ones. Hell yeah. Thanks, awesome. man. Yeah, th- thanks so much, man. And for our listeners, uh, we are going to be back in uh, one week's time where we are going to be continuing in the science fiction mode where uh, we are going to be uh, meeting up with some aliens. And there is a little bit of AI, I believe, in the first feature. We're going to be talking about The Day the Earth Stood Still, directed by Robert Wise, the 50s science fiction classic, one I have not seen in a very long time and I'm excited to revisit. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be pairing it with Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Let's go. The, uh, I think the, on, only the second or third time we're going to be talking about Spielberg, but back in the news for losing all of the Oscars that he lost. <laughs> um, I'm definitely excited to uh, go back to that one. And uh, yes, yeah, so that's going to be a fun episode where we're going to be talking about uh, not our relationship uh, necessarily to computers and AI, AI but to just a great other uh, yeah. and to aliens and what else could be out there. Uh, and the uh, two weeks from now over. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, so that episode is going to be on the uh, Patreon exclusively again. Patreon.com slash these ways podcast for anyone interested in that episode. And it is going to perfectly tee up the uh, episode on aliens that we are going to be doing uh, in two weeks time over on the main feed with a special guest where we are going to be talking about uh, John Carpenter's Starman. Nice. Uh, which uh, I, I heard a lot of people say that there's a, a little bit of uh, close encounters in there and there's a little bit of, you know, kind of like a like a friendly a- alien taking human form and trying to like kind of figure his way out from there. But I've, I've never seen Starman. It's actually yeah, one neither. of it's, it might even be my biggest John Carpenter blind spot. So I'm really excited to finally fill that one because mm-hmm. uh, the guest picked it and we're going to be pairing it with something that actually connects to this week's episode. The man who fell to Earth directed by Nicholas Roeg, who co-directed uh, Performance uh, with Donald Camel and uh, who also directed Don't Look Now, starring Julie Christie. Which is great. Uh, so we're going to be talking about his, uh, yeah, his David Bowie alien film, The Man Ooh, cool. Who Fell to Earth, will be the pairing with Starman. So yeah, we're, we're going, uh, we didn't entirely intend to it, but we we are doing almost like a month of science fiction right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's pretty sweet. I feel like uh, it's probably the um, one we least talk about, or maybe that's just my feeling of it, about it but uh yeah it's cool we definitely um, cover like action and horror more than science fiction yeah. so it, it feels good to kind of stretch out and do a bunch of science fiction in a row yeah stick in that realm a little bit get some classics out of the way too you know like definitely. i want to talk about some 50 50 sci-fi is such like kind of like an under discussed thing in 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 general it feels yeah. like now like if anyone's going to talk about the new the body snatchers films or something they're not going to talk about the don siegel one they're going to talk about like the 70s one yeah that's kind of like where people kind of go with it but yeah i want to i want to go back and, and and do the original and also uh keanu reeves was in the remake mm-hmm. and he's got a john wick movie on the way there's lots of connections out there yeah so i'm gonna so. i'm gonna watch the remake that i know 
nobody likes, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it. I, do, you know what? I, rem- I, I feel like I kind of remember watching it, but I don't remember like anything about it. I remember yeah. thinking it was bad, but you know what? This might even be good reason to revisit it. Yeah, too. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> might do that too. Um, but yeah, that is going to be uh, what's coming up for the next couple weeks. So look forward to that. Uh, but that being said, that uh, wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it easy. Keep it sleazy.